definitely good to be with you, to be able to bring you the preaching of the word. And so to that end, if you would, please open your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And this message will conclude uh, our journey through uh, the book of Hebrews. And we'll be reading chapter 13, verses 18 through the end of the chapter at verse 25. And so I'll read the word and then we'll have a brief word of prayer. And then after that, we will get into the preaching of the word. So Hebrews chapter 13, and we'll begin reading in verse 18. Hear now the word of God. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all, or be with all of you. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that you have sent forth your word like the manna that fell from heaven by which you nourished your people in the wilderness. We give thanks, O Lord, that you shower us from heaven with your word, the word preached, the word read, and by which you feed us with Christ, the manna from heaven. We pray, O Lord, that you would give unto us nourishment, that you would give unto us strength, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would give unto us a clear vision of beholding you in the face of Christ through the eyes of faith, and that in so doing you would conform and transform us more and more unto the image of Christ, and that you would do so all unto your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. When you come to the end of a long journey, there's a chance that you're going to come upon a fork in the road where you have been journeying with friends or with companions and you're going to have to part ways. You're going to have to go each his own way. And the author of Hebrews has brought us here, really, we can say, to the end of this journey. And he's written his sermon consisting of nearly 7,000 words in the English translation. And here, as we part ways... We're not saying that we will never return to him, but nevertheless, as we part ways, uh, he uh, gives us, we can say, some densely packed words with love, concern, and care. You know, think, for example, when Jacob, the patriarch, was on the threshold of dying. He called his sons into his presence and he gave them some parting words. He prophesied to them regarding their futures. He told them that they would, the things that would occur in the future, 
But he just didn't tell them about what would happen in their individual lives. He ultimately pointed them at this big fork in the road. He pointed them to Christ. He foretold to them of the lion of the tribe of Judah who would come and take the scepter and rule over all of Israel and the nations. So as he came to the end of his journey and he knew that he was forking off on the road to one direction and they were going to head in the other, he used that moment to impart Christ unto his sons. He used, we can say, his last breaths to point them to Jesus. When the Apostle Paul came to the end of his journey, as he had been laboring with the church at Ephesus, he bid them farewell through a veil of tears. And as he came to that fork in the road, we can say, well, what was it uh, that he desired to impart to them? What last words did he want to share with them as they went their separate ways? Well, he warned them of ravenous wolves that would try to harm the church. And he exhorted the elders of the church of Ephesus to watch over the church. But he too, with his last parting words, pointed them to Christ. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He pointed them to Christ with his last parting words. I can remember in my own life when I had just graduated from college at the time, I had been working for a company while I was in school, and uh, upon my graduation, they decided to transfer me uh, to another location. And so I can remember having my car packed to the gills with my stuff, and I was just moving some two hours away, so it wasn't necessarily uh, a big move, but nevertheless, as I got into my car, I can remember my parents standing there uh, just outside of the garage of our home in Atlanta, and I can remember them telling me with these parting words as we were standing there at the fork in this road, they said, use this time when you're not going to have many friends. Use this time as a time for prayer, as a time for seeking God's face, as a time for immersing yourself in his word. Those words I can remember to this day, and those words, in a sense, I can almost say, are certainly a huge part in what has put me here in this very pulpit. It's because those words became, if you will, the anvil the anvil upon which God used to conform and to hammer my will unto his, which ended up sending me off to seminary and onto the path of ministry. So at that fork in the road, my parents used those parting words to point me to Christ. And so in light of the importance of parting words, what last final words does the author use to impart to us, as well as to his recipients, what is it that he wants to tell them that is so important? You know, if you just had a few words left, whether it's to a departing family member, whether it's to a dying friend, uh, whether it's just to a friend that you might see uh, in a few weeks, what last words would you want to say to them? Well, in short, like Jacob, like Paul, the author once again points us to Christ. In the face of persecution, the dangers of falling away, the intimidating unknown, he put his recipients into the arms of Jesus Christ 
our great shepherd of the sheep. And so he points us to Christ with his last parting words as we end up at this partition in the road, this fork in the road. And so first, he encourages them and us to pray to Christ. Secondly, he encourages us to listen to Christ. And then third and finally, he encourages us to shelter in Christ. So to pray to Christ, to listen to Christ, and to shelter to Christ. So let's first give thought to what words he has to say to impart to us as we part ways here about praying to Christ. Here in verse 18, he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And one of the things that we have seen throughout the entirety of this epistle is the presence of persecution is palpable throughout the whole letter. But here we can see that the author's plea reveals a vital and necessary practice. Within the church, there can often be two perhaps troubling and contradictory tendencies. We can either give the pastor and the elders too little respect on the one hand, or on the other hand, we can give them too much respect. In other words, their word is as good as gospel, never mind what the word of God says. And so in this case, I think the author's point is important because notice what he's saying here. He is admitting his own need for prayer. He's admitting his weakness. He's admitting his need for the congregation to whom he wrote to pray for him. And given what he says in verse 19, it's a likely scenario that he might have been imprisoned by the authorities and was therefore asking for their prayers. Now, the Apostle Paul made a similar plea when he wrote to the church at Ephesus in chapter 6, verse 18 of that letter, when he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul said, pray for me. Here, the author of this epistle says, pray for me. I'm in desperate need of your prayers. There are all types of surveys that you can see and you can find them online that have been conducted that one of the things that challenges pastors throughout the years uh, is the struggle to remain in the ministry. One Christianity Today survey said that among those polled, 38% of the pastors that were polled were considering leaving the ministry. You know, if you think about it, there's a sense in which ministry is not supposed to be like any and every other vocation. You know, one of the things that my wife and I joke about one of my sons is we say that given his personality... Uh, he's either going to be homeless in a box living down by the river, or he's going to be a millionaire. Uh, But in being a millionaire, it's that he's going to have 16 side hustles, because he's always working some angle on something. So 16 side hustles, you know, he's always up to something. And so it doesn't surprise me see him change from one thing to another. He's always doing that. And I suppose that that's the way you can go about your vocation. If you get tired of one vocation, you can switch and go to another. When my wife first met me, 
She was like, anything, any chance that I could get you to, I'll pay for you, you know, I'll work and we'll put you through law school or for medical school. And I was like, <laughs> I chuckled. And I said, no, you know, one of my friends told me, he said when I was first ordained, he says right before we went out for the ordination service, he says, isn't this great? The only way you get out of this is you either die or you get defrocked. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, now when you put it that way, yeah, this is a serious kind of thing. This is not just something that you kind of weave in and out of. You're in and you're in for life, ideally. And yet of those surveyed, 38% were thinking about leaving. Now, while some statistics have been overreported, they say that some 250 pastors leave the ministry every month. Now, anecdotally, I was going through some files on my computer, and one of the things that I used to do at my former institution is I used to make the uh, senior graduation video. I would say, send in your pictures, and you know, we'd often do some skits, and we'd put this on video, and I started watching one of those videos because I stumbled across it on my computer. And as I began watching just the first few opening moments of this video, it, it began to strike me. There was a degree of sadness that overwhelmed me because as I looked at this video from more than a decade ago, uh, I noted how many people had fallen by the wayside. One of the graduates had poked, gone into the Roman Catholic Church. One had decided to leave the ministry and pursue another vocation. Another one was divorced. Another one committed apostasy. Another one died of a drug overdose. And it just struck me out of this one class how many who aimed for the ministry, but yet in one way or another, for one reason or another, didn't make it into the ministry or didn't last long in the ministry. Now, this is not to say that among those graduates in that particular class or that video that I watched, that there weren't any who are still faithfully ministering in the church. There were many. But I think this collection of observations and anecdotes and statistics should tell us and impress upon our hearts and our minds the importance of the author's plea. And it should press this question upon our hearts, do we pray for our pastors and our elders? Do we pray for our pastors and for our elders? One of my favorite books that I've read uh, over the years is Stephen Ambrose's uh, Band of Brothers, you know, the story of the 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment uh, that they went into battle on D-Day. And one of the battles in which they fought was in the Battle of the Bulge, the last German offensive of World War II in the European theater. And one of the things that they reported uh, is that as they were there in the Battle of the Bulge, it was essentially December and the temperatures were absolutely frigid. But one of the things that they told the soldiers they would not do, they could not do, it was absolutely uh, perilous to do so, was to try to build any fires to warm themselves because in building a fire, it created light at night, which was the coldest point in the evening. And in creating light, it presented a target for the enemy, and it would draw enemy fire. They would start to shell the light wherever they saw it. And so they essentially had to live uh, in the cold of the night, in the freezing temperatures, apart from the heat of a fire, because light drew enemy fire. 
Well, as the bearers of light, both elders and pastors are the enemy's natural targets. They bear light. They bring the light of truth. They bring the light of the gospel. And as bearers of the light, they draw enemy fire. I think this is one of the reasons why so many of those students uh, that I saw in that video have left the ministry for one reason or another. This is why I think so many of these pastors, 38% of those polled, wanted to leave the ministry. They're under extreme pressure. They draw enemy fire. And this is why I think the author was not above elevating himself above the people. And he said, pray for me. But notice in what he is, what he's saying here by saying, pray for me. He's also encouraging the church to pray to Christ. He was not saying prayer is something for thee, but not for me. On the contrary, he needed their prayers as much as they needed to pray for themselves and for one another. You know, we've seen his concern for Timothy, for example, in verse 23, and his care for the other leaders in verse 24. And so what the author is doing here with these last parting words as they come to this fork in the road, and he doesn't know if he's ever going to see them again, if he's ever going to be able to communicate with them again, he says, pray to Christ for me. And implied in that, I think, is also the message of pray to Christ for you. Pray to Christ for the other leaders. Pray to Christ on behalf of one another. Pray for yourselves. I think one of the greatest weapons and the tools that we can use in the face of the challenges of persecution or sufferings or the challenges of life is prayer. And this is why the author here says with his last parting words, pray to Christ. But secondly... We see that the author also exhorts his recipients to listen to Christ, to listen to Christ. He says in verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, when the author says to bear with my word of exhortation, he's referring to the very letter that sits before us, which was his written sermon. He was encouraging them to to meditate upon it, to think about it. In the light of his request to pray for him and the other leaders, he was asking them really to pray over this letter. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, there are some books and some films that I have seen and I think, yep, just interested in seeing it once. Right now I'm reading a book where I think it's because my parents always told me to clean my plate, that I always feel the obligation. I've got to finish the book no matter how boring it is. Every once in a while, I pull the ripcord, and I'm like, I'm out of here. I, I've, I, I, my life is too short for me to spend more time in this boring book. But right now, I'm, I'm trudging through a book, and I'm doing my best to finish it. But there are a number of books and films to which I go back, and I enjoy reading them again And again, because there's so much there. You know, so often it'll be a film and I'll be watching it 
and I may have watched it now, maybe for the 10th, the 20th time, whatever it may be, and I start not just simply to listen to the dialogue or to watch the characters on screen, but I'll start looking at the things in the background, and I'll notice little small details that I may have missed on other occasions, or there are times when I'll read a book, say, for example, like the Bible. How many times have you read the Bible, and you think, I have read the Bible, I don't know how many times, I've read this book how many times, why have I never noticed this one detail? Why did all of a sudden did it stand out? That's what he's saying. He's saying, go back, listen to Christ. Because this word, this letter, is not simply the author's letter, Given what he says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, that God in many times spoke to us through the fathers, but now in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, he is saying, this is the very word of Christ. Listen to it. Meditate upon it. Think about it. He was encouraging them, he's encouraging us to listen to Christ's word. I think this has perhaps been one of the challenges for the people of God throughout all of redemptive history, not listening to the voice of God in Scripture. What is it that God told Adam? He says in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife rather than you've not, you know, you've not listened to my voice. To Israel, Exodus fifteen twenty six. if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. The consistent message of Scripture is listen to my voice. Listen to my word. But in order for us to listen, that means we have to silence our minds. We have to quiet our hearts. We have to close our mouths. You know, one of the things that we do as a family is we'll be watching a movie. And we have to do this regularly. I think it's because I love my children, but they are persistent. And I'll take the blame for it, along with my wife. Uh, My wife and I are both very persistent people, so that's why my children are so persistent. And we're doing our best to channel this persistence. But we'll be watching a film, and a character will say a word or say a phrase, and one of my children will interrupt, and he or she will say, hey, what is that? And I'm saying, just wait, two seconds go by, and there's the explanation. Sometimes you have to be quiet. Sometimes you have to be quiet to listen. In his book, uh, uh, Alan Jacobs writes in his book, How to Think, he talks about the fact that one of the things that keeps us from thinking properly, that keeps us from thinking well, is we are too busy talking. We're not listening. And by listening, it's not just simply a question of listening. I heard what you said, and so now I'm ready to respond. Because he says often in those cases, somebody is too busy even trying to formulate a response to what the professor is saying, to what the elder is saying, to what the pastor is saying, to what the parent is saying, you name it. They're trying to formulate a response, which means they're not really taking in what the person is saying. Alan Jacobs gives the example that he's been in class lecturing and that a student asks a question and he tells the student, because they have class the next day, he says, I'm not going to answer that question. I want you to go home and I want you to think about what I've said 
And I promise you, by tomorrow, you will not have a question. And the students are flabbergasted. What do you mean you're not going to answer my question? He says, I want you to listen. I want you to think about what I'm saying. Stop trying to ask questions because I don't detect misunderstanding. I detect argumentativeness. And I want you to listen to what I've said rather than trying to respond. And he says most of the time his students come back the next day and said, you know, you're right. Now I understand what you're saying because I had time to listen. I had time to think about what you're saying. I had time to meditate upon it. I think this is the case when it comes to the word of God. So often it's, we're reading the word of God and we think that can't be right. I must have misunderstood it. Or might it be that we say the preacher can't be right on that one. Well, maybe the preacher's wrong. That's always a possibility. But what if the preacher's not wrong? What if he's right? What often happens is that the scriptures can rub us the wrong way. And we think that the fault is either with the scriptures or with the preacher rather than with us. And so when the author here says, in verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, he's saying, listen to the word of Christ. Meditate upon it. Think about it. It may rub you the wrong way. And I suspect that it did. Because he was correcting them. He's saying you're headed the wrong way. You're headed towards apostasy. You need to do a 180 degree turn and you need to go the opposite direction. Beloved, what this means is we desperately need humility. The humility to listen to Christ's word. And in this case, to ponder Christ's voice in his word, in this epistle that we would heed his voice, that we would listen to the voice of Christ, and that we would respond with obedience. But the only way that we'll do so is by the grace of God in Christ through the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit subduing our rebellious hearts so that we will quiet our voices, so that we will open our ears, and so that we will listen to the voice of Christ speaking in Scripture. Third and finally... The author says not only first to, uh, to, um, to uh, pray to Christ and then secondly to listen to Christ, but third he says here to shelter in Christ and that in the light of the pressing persecution, the need for prayer and the humility to listen, like Jacob and Paul before him, the author places his recipients and us into the hands of the only one who can help us. He says this in this Uh, famous closing lines of Hebrews. He says in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. In the face of persecution... And even in the face of the threat of death, who has overcome our great foe? Who has given us the confidence to be able to taunt death? 
you know, I think I've said this before, but uh, especially now next to my growing son who seems to be sprouting higher and higher like a weed. And I wonder when will he stop growing? Because now, now he's taken to making fun of me because now he's taller. And he says, Dad, I know you're shorter. Do you want me to get that for you? And I'm like, hey, you, you watch out. <laughs> you watch out. I may be small, but I'm spry. The point is, is that I know that I'm slight of frame. And so because I'm slight of frame, I don't taunt people. I find that that's probably not a good use of my energy because people are bigger than me. And yet, why would we think that if we are slight of frame in the face of death, what would give us any inkling that it would be a wise or prudent thing to taunt death? And yet this is exactly what Paul tells us to do. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 and following, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's as if Paul is saying, Who do you think you are, death? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not taunting death as a mere human being. Paul is taunting death as one who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered sin and death. And that is why the author says when you face persecution, when you face the prospects of death, maybe even death at the hands of your persecutors, the last thing that I can do with these last few words that I have that I can impart to you as we approach this fork in the road is shelter in Christ, the one who has conquered death. I even can't help but think here that the author is riffing, if you will, upon Jesus' own teaching in the Gospel of John. He says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10, verses 11 and following? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. Christ has conquered death through his shed blood and through the promises of the better covenant, the new covenant. And as the author has stressed this throughout the entirety of his letter, whether in the seventh chapter, the eighth chapter, or the twelfth chapter. Why does Christ, or sorry, why does the author therefore place us into the hands of Christ? Because Christ is the only one who can help us. He's the only one who can save us. He's the only one who can assist us. And this is why he says that Christ will equip us with everything good that we need in order to do his will. We will not be able to pray to Christ. We will not be able to have humility unless he equips us to do so. And at the same time, we have to remember that this equipping is not Christ merely handing over the necessary tools that we need and then 
like David trying on Saul's bulky armor that God has given us all of this equipment, we stumble out onto the field of battle in order to face our foes. That's not at all the picture that should come to mind. When the author says that Jesus equips us with everything that we need to do his will, it's because Christ indwells us. He subdues our will. He gives unto us his holiness. He gives unto us the desire to serve him, to obey him. He gives unto us the strength that we need, the spiritual fortitude. We can say it in this way that he gives unto us his fruit. He is the vine, we are the branches, and therefore the author places us into the hands of Christ that we might seek his life-giving sap into our lives, that we might produce the fruit of the Spirit. In this case, love is important. We need a love for God and for one another. In this case, joy is key because we need joy in the midst of sorrow. In this case, peace is vital because in the face of of the storms of trial, we need to be able to survey the chaos and be unflappable, undeterred, and unafraid. And in this case, patience is necessary because as we look upon our circumstances, we need to wait upon the Lord for his deliverance in the midst of our challenges, especially if we face persecution. This is why he commends us into the hands of Christ. And this is why we need to flee into the arms of Christ. But notice the goal of placing us in Christ's hands and the aim of fulfilling his will as God works in and through us. The aim of all of this is God's eternal glory. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the whole goal of the Christian life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What the author wants us to do is he gives us these last parting words. As he wants to fill the vision of our faith with an all-consuming glance and look upon Christ. In the words of that ancient Irish hymn, Be Thou My Vision, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, Thou mine inheritance, now and always, Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, High King of Heaven, my treasure Thou art, High King of Heaven, my victory won, May I reach Heaven's joys, O bright Heaven's sun, Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, Still be my vision, O ruler of all. Beloved, the author's concluding words are powerful. And I can even say that they are beautiful. And they should be an anchor for us, an anchor for us all, no matter whether we face times of plenty or want, joy or sorrow. And our prayers should be that we should pray for our pastors and for our leaders. We should Pray that God would give us ears to hear and meditate upon Christ's words and that we would seek shelter in Christ, in Christ alone, the only one who can save us, the only one who can equip us to be able to live in every circumstance to his glory. So to that end, 
I conclude this message with those powerful words, the benediction that the author gives unto us. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do as will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for these parting words from the author of Hebrews. We pray that you would cement them into our hearts. That you would give unto us a spirit of prayer. And indeed, what lies at the heart of a spirit of prayer is one of humility. One where we acknowledge, O Lord, that we are insufficient for the tasks of the day. We are unequal to the tasks that you have set before us. But in Christ, O Lord, you equip us for every good work. O Father, prick our hearts that we would pray and that we would be a people of prayer, not simply in times of need, but rather in times of joy, in times of riches, in times of fullness. That we would not be like Israel, that when times get good, we would forget you, O Lord, but rather that it would be in those times, whether in times of plenty or in times of want, that we would be a people of prayer. That we would pray for our pastors to preserve them, to protect them, to keep them safe from temptation, to keep them safe from pride, to protect them, O Lord, from themselves and from the enemy who would seek to harm and to snuff out the light of the gospel that they carry. Protect our pastors, protect our leaders. We pray, O Father, that you would give unto us humility to listen to your word. We pray, O Lord, that we would not flee from your word when it does not agree with us, but rather we would seek it out, especially when it does not agree with us. But, O Lord, we know that we cannot have this humility on our own. It must come from Christ. And so we pray, O Christ, to you that you would impart unto us a spirit of humility a spirit of contrition, a spirit of repentance, and one that relies upon you for our strength, for our life, and for our sanctification. For apart from you, we can do nothing. Produce in us, O Lord, the fruit in keeping with your character and holy image. And that you would do all of these things, O Lord, unto your glory. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.